Hello friends, welcome to Mr. Rewatch, the Mr. Robot recap show brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. What's new with you? Well, uh, I think I might be entering an early midlife crisis, perhaps. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, so I've signed myself up for a workshop in which I will learn to grow culinary mushrooms. Thank you for explaining what they're culinary mushrooms. Well, I feel like when I just say mushrooms, it makes me sound like I have like a grow up <laughs> happening in my nice... Uh, neighborhood which is not the impression <laughs> that i want to give but also i'm from a real hippie town so um i also learned that apparently once i learn the basic skills i'll be able to grow mushrooms that will compost some of my household garbage that is the guelfest thing i've ever heard <laughs> but I, I look forward to getting some of your mushrooms i'm gonna drink a kombucha while i build it <laughs> so. That's what's up with me. Uh, what about you? Have you listened to anything good lately? Yeah, I've been rocking out to Crystal Castles. So we're watching episode five today, and it starts with uh, Vera meeting his lawyer. He was arrested at the end of, I think, episode three, and he's really about to have the book thrown at him. I think that they already are suggesting that he's looking at murder one or something like that. And at this point, his lawyer is just saying, you're going to jail. You just need to make the best case for the best jail. But it's really not looking too good for Vera. Um, most of the stuff he says in this episode is kind of weird spiritualist nonsense that seemed kind of weird to me. What did you think about that? To be honest, I'm not super into it, um, but I think there's a bit of, it's sort of obvious foreshadowing as, like, as a tool. So the one takeaway I have from this is, you know, he says to his lawyer, who's like totally being the bad news fairy in this <laughs> scene, you know, somebody's going to get hurt for this and that's how we get square with the universe. Right. He does kind of have this idea about cosmic retribution, right? Well, exactly, because... I mean, it's interesting because he's asserting that like no man can sentence or punish him because that's obviously exactly what's about to happen. He's saying it while he's currently in a prison cell. Yeah, so, <laughs> you, you know, maybe not the sharpest tool in yeah. the, the shed. Sometime. After all, he does he did have his entire operation on the clear net, which is not really something a smart criminal would do. Exactly, and so, I mean, and we talked about that a little bit in an earlier episode where, right. you know, so now that they're on to him, Everything's right there. Right. And we kind of find out that this was his brother's plan because his brother is a bit of an entrepreneur and he noticed that this would lead to increased revenue for Vera. Exactly. Which it temporarily did. Temporarily. The next thing we see, so the gang's all together. They're out getting the coffee. Yeah, in a nice non-Starbucks coffee shop. <laughs> um, and so in my notes, I kind of written this off as a scene of no consequence. Yeah, well, it, it's actually quite important, but in a way that's sort of subtle. Um, the plan of this meeting is uh, they're trying to figure out how to get into Steel Mountain, right? The way that they do this is by noticing that there's somebody else in this cafe who has a key card that will allow them access to Steel Mountain. And the one thing that's interesting about key cards is that they kind of have um, a secure token on them, which is like a unique random number that identifies that key code. And then using um, RFID, you kind of transmit that number onto a scanning device, which checks the number and then unlocks it. But 
an implication of that is that if I am able to look at your card and copy the number of it onto my card, then I can impersonate you. And that's what they do. Um, they use a kind of clever trick to walk up close to the guy to get within range of his key card without uh, alarming him. And then they just make a copy of it and they can use it themselves later. It's kind of like a physical form of something called a replay attack, where you get one kind of um, valid bit of information and then use it in ways that were not anticipated originally when it was created. So is this why you can buy those ARFID scanner-proof wallets and briefcases and things now? Exactly. This guy should have had one of us. Yeah. You'd think he works at Steel Mountain. <laughs> yeah. That's a little weird. Yeah. Maybe that's... Maybe that's... Plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's pride goeth before the fall. <laughs> that's a better way to put it. So at the end of the last episode, we saw a car that we presumed was being driven to Steel Mountain. And then we see that that was the case. We have um, a small subset of uh, F Society in this car. It's, I think, Romero, Mobley, Mr. Robot, and Elliot. And they're, they're almost there now. This is such a suspenseful episode. This is one of my favorite episodes in this season. It's so good. And so what's really interesting about this is to, to achieve their goal, there's a number of technological hurdles. And the yeah. first one we already saw, right, was scanning that ARFID card. Mm -hmm. Now, Elliot's about to face a bunch of human hurdles. The first of which is Bill, right? Exactly. And I'll say, for someone who's so socially awkward, Elliot's very good at hacking people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really like his uh, expertise. But he does have some assistance with the earpiece uh, and Mr. Robot's advice. Exactly. So the team in the car is still very much a part of the scene. Right. But Elliot goes in and he's impersonating someone named Sam Steppiel. Right. Presumably Sam is an um, uh, entrepreneur, works at a big company or something like that. And he wants to get a tour of Steel Mountain so that he can plant this Raspberry Pi in there and set off a huge chain reaction. Um, the first hurdle, uh, like we said, is getting a tour. So he's pretending to be somebody very influential, so that Bill will try and sell Steel Mountain services to him. And I'm not really clear on Bill's role, but Bill seems to be like the greeter at but, Steel Mountain. Yeah, I suppose so. The tour giver, maybe. Uh, it's interesting because Bill tries to give him the brush off. Yeah, because he didn't really come in with any credentials. He was sort of just saying, I'm Sam, look me up. But when, when he actually does look him up, we find that Mobley has edited his Wikipedia page in advance. So it kind of lends some uh, credibility to Elliot's lie. To Bill, it actually looks like this guy is famous. Exactly. And they raise some interesting points about Wikipedia here, because there's sort of the question that, oh, maybe it's not reliable. <laughs> Yeah, well, if I was to go and edit Wikipedia, I don't have a, a good reputation there or anything, so a bot that detects vandalism would come and fix that immediately. But they established that Mobley has been using Wikipedia for a long time. Maybe he's even like an administrator or something like that. So he has powers and reputation that uh, the average person wouldn't. I like that this is a nice achievement moment for Mobley. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's doing a really good job here. I think he really is. So, and it's interesting too because Mr. Robot's first approach is that Elliot should just increase his aggression level. That's been kind of consistent for Mr. Robot because if we remember, he just wanted to blow up this place to begin with. Oh, so that's right. He's already compromising. This is already the soft sell. <laughs> um, Elliot doesn't do that and I think that's the right call because I think it would be too out of character to be believable. Yeah. So, he... He doesn't even charm his way in. He just kind of rests on the idea that Bill's going to go away, look him up, and then realize that Sam Sepiel is so important and maybe he's making a terrible mistake by telling him to get out. And that's basically what happens. Bill chases him down and he invites him to take this tour. That's the first hurdle because now they can look all around um, level one of this building. But Elliot's goal is to get to the second level, which has additional security. Elliot does have to uh, up his game a bit, though, because the only way that he's able to get past Bill and someone else 
it's basically to crush his spirit a little bit. Yeah, actually, um, at this point, Elliot kind of remembers some traumatic things that have happened to him in his life. He experiences some flashbacks to his abusive parents, and he's able to kind of channel that anger and rage right at Bill. And he does it in a way that is, to me, kind of over the top and gratuitous. I, I kind of was laughing at it a little bit, but it does definitely just show that Elliot is destroying Bill for the purposes of getting to his supervisor. I like that he also does it in this really Elliot way. Like, the line that stands out to me is, if you were to die, people would leave your funeral as early as possible. <laughs> Who would say that, though? Who would say that? <laughs> so the plan almost falls apart here, but Bill's spirit is sufficiently crushed. Right, so he calls his supervisor, but it's actually not the person they were expecting to answer that call. They had planned for Wendy. So Wendy, they had already hacked Wendy and had enough information to sort of create a plausible way to call her out of the situation and give him access. Right. In a way, the first hurdle was Bill. And now he's, um, he's, he's served his purpose because he's got the tour and he's on the first level of the facility. The next goal is to use Wendy to get to the second level. And at that point, they need to use a plan to uh, kind of get Wendy out of the picture. Yep. And the way that they do that is um, sending them a, a text message about their wife's pregnancy. Exactly. So when Wendy doesn't show up and Trudy shows up instead, this is a new unanticipated hurdle. So the guys in the car really have to improvise at this point. Yeah, and uh, like I was saying earlier, Mobley really uh, shows his skills here because he uses um, something called the Social Engineering Toolkit to send a, a fake SMS message. This is totally possible. Anybody can do it. And he uses it to send a text message to Wendy saying that their husband has maybe been in an accident or has been diagnosed with something like that. Very vague. But um, it's successful in getting Trudy out of the picture. Exactly, because the point of this scene is that all people are vulnerable in the same ways to the same fears and the same exploits. Right, you don't even really need to explain what's going wrong because they'll fill it out in their imagination. Exactly, and it's predictable how any of us would interpret a message <laughs> like the one that she got. So now she rushes off because she's panicked. And this is where we come back to our old friend, the good old lockpit kid. <laughs> yeah, he, he picks a lock with insane speed, which I think is a little impractical, because especially a place like this, um, there are many different kinds of locks that have different kinds of pins, and you can get locks that are very, very high security, that are very, very hard to pick. And I think that even with somebody as skilled as Elliot, it's really unlikely that they'd be able to pick a lock that's secure in like under a minute. What's interesting is they say that apparently there has to be one regular lock for the fire code. Oh, wow. Maybe they knew that. Because they had the floor plan and everything. Exactly. They do know that. And so that's the vulnerability is that this is the one way he could get in that doesn't require somebody's security clearance. But once he gets in, he finds out that it's actually the wrong tower or something like that. Yeah, he's screwed. It just takes him to the parking lot. <laughs> and then when he walks back out through that door, he finds that um, Tyrell is there, which he didn't expect at all. Absolutely. And Tyrell's not expecting him either, but Tyrell's enough of an opportunist that he's going to make something out of this uh, accidental meeting. Yeah, well, Tyrell kind of knows already that it's a little serendipitous to have an accidental meeting in this place way far away from where Elliot actually lives. Because Tyrell has flown out here, he's inspecting the place for a valid reason. There's no real reason for Elliot to be there, right? No, and Tyrell kind of checks on that. Like, is this not a job for the engineers? <laughs> and Elliot, I like his vague budget cuts, blah, 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 here <laughs> I am. <laughs> but then... Um, when Tyrell asks him to go to lunch, there's no way he can say no now. Yeah. The lunch is very painful because 
it's funny, Tyrell says to him, we're the same. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways they are, but one way that they differ is uh, Tyrell's great disdain for the service class. Oh, yeah. It's insane. You heard that part of the, where he picks on the waiter? Yeah, were they like comparing him to a cockroach or something? I know. It's uh, a jerk, but... Yeah, it just goes to show you that Tyrell's a bit of an asshole. Exactly, which I think we sort of already established, but this <laughs> furthers it. Um, and maybe that's why Elliot tries to excuse himself. So Tyrell is the next human hurdle that he's yep. got to get past, right? And Tyrell's obviously walking freely through the building too, mm -hmm. so this is important. And maybe this is why Elliot excuses himself uh, to get the hell out of there for a minute and use the bathroom. Right, actually. Uh, that's worth mentioning because Tyrell kind of has some powers in this place that Elliot doesn't. He can move freely between all these floors and he, he knows this, so he actually kind of socially engineers Tyrell to choose a lounge that is on a, a more secure floor instead of his first choice, which was the food court on a less secure floor. So he's manipulating Tyrell in a kind of very subtle way here to overcome those hurdles. But you're right that um, the lunch is kind of unbearable. I wouldn't really want to be seated across from Tyrell either. So he runs out to the bathroom and he notices that there's a, a, an AC control panel in there. So he can plug in the Raspberry Pi and start this chain of events. Exactly. So this terrible coincidence actually works out in Elliot's favor. So a little bit of luck. A little bit, because before he's able to install and plug in the Raspberry Pi, Tyrell actually interrupts him in the bathroom. This confrontation scene, I mean, we know how sinister Tyrell is. So he confronts him. He tells him everything he knows. He says, I know you framed Terry Colby. He also says, you know, he'd been trying hard to find Elliot's weakness and that it's revenge. That's really interesting. Isn't it? Well, because Tyrell thinks that this is exclusively about Elliot's father's illness and death and mm -hmm. the whole Washington Township scandal. It's really impressive that Tyrell was able to pick up on all of this, I think. And that's the thing where Tyrell sort of has ears and eyes everywhere, I think. Mm -hmm. So he knows a lot more than he ought to know. And we'll see that again later in this episode where he's got awareness of things that he probably shouldn't. Yeah. But so it's interesting, though, because Tyrell also says he's not going to turn him in. Well, yeah, because as we were talking about earlier, this course of action is actually kind of advantageous to Tyrell. He has, uh, it, it creates a power vacuum that he's able to come in and fill. He loves a power vacuum. Yeah, it works well for him. He does get one last status dig at Elliot before he leaves because he's being flown home by a helicopter. <laughs> and Elliot, I think they say it's something like 200 miles away. Yeah, and he says, enjoy your long drive home. But I think that the weirdest thing he does is talk while using the urinal, because that's just something that's not acceptable. I didn't even notice that. That's not acceptable, <laughs> is it? The bathroom is just in there talking, so. And maybe that's just a sign, like, that's how much disdain he has, even for someone he respects. I think that it's not only showing that he has disdain, but that he feels untouchable, because he kind of feels like he can get away with anything. I mean, we don't know what he's going to do with all this information, but he wants to know Elliot that he has it. Yeah. Um, once Tyrell leaves, though, Elliot is able to finish plugging in the Raspberry Pi. So this very, so this task with all of these barriers and all of these hurdles, it's actually successful. So as far as F Society is concerned, so far so good. So let's flip over to a different storyline. So we do have a scene with Angela at her apartment. She's packing up her clothes. Ollie's getting super desperate. Um, so at this point, he's like, no, no, babe, let's get married. <laughs> because when your relationship's in crisis, I think that what you should probably do is get married. I'm surprised he wasn't like, let's have a baby. <laughs> do you remember in the pilot episode when Darlene is saying that her boyfriend proposed to her and he's like a major jerk for it? That's what yeah, I thought of here. Yeah, and she, she leaves him over that. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's kind of interesting. Um, the other thing Ollie now knows is that Angela has framed him for infecting the all-safe system. Yeah, because she used his ID. Exactly. So she's got that knowledge. And so she's packing up her stuff. Where do we see her next? Uh, I think that she moves out of her place with Ollie and she goes and lives with her dad for a while. Her dad is like the sweetest, most charming character. He's um, letting her live there, paying for some of her bills and stuff like that. Um, it also seems that Ollie anticipated that she would be going to see his dad because he's been calling him over and over and over again, trying to get uh, Angela back. But he agrees that Ollie was a douchebag, so maybe it was just Angela who hadn't realized it yet. I like that he says, come on, the kid's a douchebag. <laughs> that's the one note that I wrote for this scene. Yeah, yeah, that's the one quote I have also. So the last we see of Angela for this episode is she's out jogging because, again, she's like the wholesome character in this. <laughs> uh, and she stubs. Uh, right in front of a fork in the road. Yeah, it's not exactly very subtle symbolism here. No, to be honest, I, I was saying to you earlier that I was like, sometimes the show is a tiny bit hacky. <laughs> that's a good word for it. And that's not a pun I intended. <laughs> um, but sometimes it is a little bit over the top. But I think because the whole, everything is so exaggerated, I don't mind that from this yeah. show. And I think that there are also enough other cases where it's so subtle that it kind of uh, counterbalances it. Exactly. It kind of makes me wonder what I should be paying attention to sometimes. It makes it very rewatchable, that's for sure. That is for sure, which is why you should uh, be rewatching and re-listening to this podcast. <laughs> Next, we see Cisco and Darlene meeting at the library. We found out that Cisco is um, Darlene's ex-boyfriend and tenuous connection to the Dark Army. He's using this opportunity to tell um, Darlene that the Dark Army is actually unable to cooperate at this point, and that they had made the decision not to help F society with this attack even before they'd infiltrated Seal Mountain. I think it's interesting that he works in a library, which is also, uh, their whole point is access to information. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. I like to work at libraries myself. Yeah, yeah, a library is a great resource. <laughs> Go to your community library. Having fun isn't hard when you got a library card. Um, <laughs> that's, that's adorable. <laughs> um, part of this scene that's so shocking is Darlene is very loud and public about her confrontation. She was doing this in the previous episode, actually, when they were leaving the ping pong bar. Uh, she was just shouting, like, I'm a menace to society, before Dark Army came and picked him up. It reminds me of this scene in The Wire where it's like, uh, this whole, I was like, gang is probably not the right word, but they're meeting and someone looks over and says, are you taking notes of this criminal <laughs> enterprise? Yeah, that's just a bad idea. Poor OPSEC. <laughs> so, so she's yelling loudly and publicly about this plot. Cisco is trying to calm her down and get her out of there. But we get one more really good piece of information here because this is the first time that the character White Rose is mentioned. They're just mentioned, though, because as is often the case, we are introduced to them long before we actually find out their entire story. This, I'm going to say, the way this show is structured is very good at building suspense. Agreed. And so I, of course, am dying to know more about that storyline, but we really don't get any more information than that at this point. Right. At the end of the library scene, Darlene has to go back to society and reveal to them that Dark Army has withdrawn their support. And this is a horrible scene because you can see how betrayed she feels. They've invested a lot in this plan so far. They have, and I think she feels like they invested a lot in her by making mm -hmm. her the bridge. Right. And it kind of uh, comes back on her and it reflects on her that the... Uh, hacking ring that she was the connection to ended up bailing out. And everyone else has tasked them successful. Yeah. So this plan is about to live or die based on what she was not able to achieve. And so she kind of loses it here. Or this is where, what did we say earlier? She's like a com combination of impulsive and brave. Yeah, I think that was right. Where she says, you know what? We just forge ahead and trust that the Dark Army will follow. 
which is kind of dangerous because if they were to um, attack Steel Mountain but not attack the redundant backup sensors, they would be able to recover right away, which is what Mr. Robot explains to her. For this plan to go through, um, Dark Army and F Society must collaborate. Exactly, because the risk is that if it's if they execute this and it's not successful, well, Steel Mountain will just improve their security. Right, because they'll become aware of the exploits that they had used to enter the system. Exactly, so there will be no second opportunity for this. Because of that, Darlene kind of feels like it's a do-or-die situation, and she's ready to uh, run the exploit, but she's stopped by the rest of F Society. Exactly, because nobody else thinks it's a good idea to go it alone. And so, for now, the F Society plot is at a standstill. Now Tyrell is back in New York, and he's planning uh, to go on a dinner with his wife, Joanna, to meet with um, Scott and Sharon Knowles. Scott has been selected for the CTO position that was made available by Terry's ousting. So, you can see here that Tyrell has lowered his expectations. Right. So he was angling to become the CTO, and now he figures his best move is to try to become that CTO's right-hand man. And, if I can make another Hamilton reference, this is where we would hear George Washington singing, get my right-hand man back. <laughs> I don't get any of these jokes, so this is hilarious. You will listen to it later. <laughs> um, so in the car, I think we get to see Joanna really contributing for the first time. Yeah. This is because I think earlier in the series, we kind of think that she's maybe his abused partner or that he's the controlling person in the relationship. And here we start to see that she's just as calculating. Yeah, they're really perfect for each other. They really, they're like a match made in hell. That's <laughs> what they are. Um, I kind of like their sinister Macbeth vibe. I really like it, actually. I think that it kind of comes off well on TV. I think it does. I mean, the thing is, like, they're both unlikable characters. Yeah. Um, but I have such interest in how their story plays out. I almost get kind of like a House of Cards vibe from them, where it's very, like, political. Well, it's interesting, because House of Cards goes this direction at the end. Spoiler alert if you're five years behind in House of Cards. I haven't seen it, but you can still spoil it for can me. Can I spoil yeah, it? Yeah, it's okay. Go is ahead. Um, we're at the end of the last season. Um, Frank Underwood starts to move away from the public sphere, and he feels that he can be more influential and more powerful in the oh, private yeah. sphere. Totally. So this is basically a private sphere control play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just mean you kind of see the same politics in play in both areas. Absolutely. And the same kind of weird relationship dynamics. Obviously mm -hmm. more exaggerated in this series, <laughs> but I think it's a good comparison. Yeah. So... Let's talk about their awkward business dinner. <laughs> this is not nice like the Gideon business dinner. No, this is a very cold, calculated dinner, which is weird adjectives for a dinner when you really think about it. But they've kind of planned and orchestrated this meeting from the very beginning because the plan here is for Tyrell to get closer to Scott and get closer to being the right hand to the CTO. It's almost like the Wellicks kind of stage managed this to lead to that outcome because at the table, so the wives are kind of distracting each other. Yeah, right? they, they seem to organize it very meticulously, where Joanna starts, um, starts just having some small talk with Sharon at the dinner table to distract her from the fact that Tyrell is talking to Scott about the CTO role. And Scott is very suspicious of him. So when Tyrell brings it up, Scott says to him, you know, there are four people in the world who know about my conversations, and I don't know why you are the fifth. It seems like he kind of has a way of hearing everything that's going on around him. Oh my god, almost like... There's a phone that might be bugged or something like that. Almost just like that. <laughs> but obviously they haven't figured it out or they would have removed that. Right, but I think that um, one thing that we're starting to see here is that 
Tyrell is sometimes overly ambitious and not subtle enough because Scott kind of immediately, immediately sees that Tyrell has an ulterior motive here when he starts talking about the CTO role. He sees right away, oh, so that's why you wanted to meet me. Well, even then, I think he says something like that, and Tyrell says, if I were you, I wouldn't have let me pass the front door. <laughs> yeah, he's very upfront about it. And that's where I think you said in an earlier episode, he feels untouchable. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this really awkward wine tasting. <laughs> I feel like we've all had our own awkward wine tasting sometimes. Well, because it's funny because I don't believe for a second, actually, that Joanna doesn't understand anything about wine. I don't believe that you can know anything about wine. It's all hook'em. But she won't even play the game, <laughs> right? Or, but I think she's playing dumb so that Scott can charm her with his yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so while they're kind of chatting about wine, is Tyrell's opportunity to take this to a different, darker place. Oh, yeah. I think actually, um, while, while uh, Scott is talking about wine to Joanna, again, they're kind of split up into two groups where Tyrell and Sharon are having their own conversation and Scott is um, wooing, wooing Joanna sorry, with some fancy wine. Tyrell and Sharon are, are not as interested in this fancy wine there. You can kind of see the boredom on their face. So he says to Sharon, how do you live with this man without killing yourself? Which is kind of crazy to hear from somebody who you've invited into your own home. What do you think uh, is his motivation there? So I think you hit on something important where it's like, I think Tyrell here is trying to out alpha male Scott in his own house. He definitely does kind of seem untouchable here. He's certainly acting untouchable, <laughs> right? Like Scott could have overheard that easily. Like this is right in front of his face to his own wife. <laughs> so he's kind of establishing that he, trying to establish himself as the more powerful of the two. She kind of calls him out on it though. Do you think that that was uh, what he expected her to react with? I, well, it's interesting because I don't know if he expected it to work or not, but in the next scene, he decides he's going to take another shot at convincing her. Oh yeah, you know, I guess actually it's, it's worth considering that maybe she's outwardly saying one thing with feeling another, and he actually has been successful with this kind of power play, and then he finds out later when they encounter each other in the bathroom in a very kind of awkward scene. Exactly, because she may feel, especially where she may be overheard, that she needs to be polite. Exactly. But the next scene where Tyrell just walks into the bathroom where she's on the toilet. This was a really weird scene when I first saw it. It's such a weird scene because <laughs> this scene is all about power. Yeah. Right? Like, it's maybe ostensibly about desire mm -hmm. or her wanting to feel desired or you think for a minute maybe he hopes that she'll desire him because it's a good power play. Um, but it's... And I mean, and it's so graphic where she just spreads her legs for him and he rejects her. Yeah, well, you can kind of tell that he's accomplished his goal if that happens. He's not actually interested in, in Sharon. He's kind of just interested in winning her over. Well, and I think he's interested in testing his limits with her. Oh, that's a great point, too. And so now he knows how far she'll go and that he can take her there if he needs to, to continue trying to mess this guy up. Yeah, and you know, this is the second time in this episode he weirdly talked in the bathroom. You know what, this guy's got a problem with weirdly talking in the bathroom. <laughs> Single stalls only for Tyrell Will. Actually, I guess that didn't stop him. Next we see Elliot running home to walk his dog, as we've all, all this dog owners have done all before. All of us have done. <laughs> uh, but when he gets there, it's a bit of an unusual sight because not only can he not find Shayla, but there's a ringing phone that's been left on the ground. Uh, he picks it up and who's on the other side? And so Vera's on the other side. Yeah, so we know that Vera's not really done for yet. He's calling Elliot from inside the prison, and it kind of goes to show that Elliot wasn't really completely effective in removing the threat of Vera from his life. 
Exactly, because I think this is a case where he thought removing the physical threat would be enough to change the dynamic that was happening there. You'd think that he would know better as somebody who often attacks people remotely. <laughs> exactly, he's totally unimpeded by physical or technological barriers. Um, so we don't have very much information, we just know that this is that, that storyline is ramping back up, yep. and I'm sure we'll learn more in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mr. Rewatch. This podcast is recorded in downtown Toronto. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, consider donating to Wikipedia at wikipedia.org. I'm Erin. And I'm Devlin. Bonsoir. <laughs>